Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting program of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the seventh guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is with contemporary artist Damien Flood, who will be exhibiting in our group show entitled Try a Little Tenderness, which opens on the 4th of February in Liminal Gallery. I first worked with Damien Flood in 2021 for Liminal Gallery's first online exhibition, Instructions for Waiting. And since then, we have also hosted an online solo show together. It's been thrilling to watch Flood's practice evolve over these last three years. His oil paintings defy an easy definition and viewers are greatly rewarded for slow looking as they reveal their inconspicuous forms, figures and narratives. They're an abstraction of thoughts and ideas, piecing together a new world in which the figure is fleeting and never fully whole. Flood mixes visual languages and reoccurring motifs throughout his work. Some motifs bear semblance to form while others are removed from any context. The sometimes awkward, sometimes flowing compositions allow for multiple readings. Like an anthropologist, Flood takes us on a journey of discovery as we look at our world through an abstracted lens which is completely unique. Recent solo shows include Dig at Green on Red Gallery in Dublin 2022 and Shape of Things at Diane Rosenstein Gallery in LA. He has been selected for the John Moore's Contemporary Painting Prize in 2008 and 2010. In 2014, he was a recipient of the Elizabeth Fitzpatrick Travel Bursary. In 2015, he was awarded the DLR Lexicon 2016 Commission. Damien Flood is represented by Green on Red Gallery in Ireland and Stephanie Simmons in Belgium. Damien Flood, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. That was a very, very, very nice intro. I'm probably going to seem a lot dumber than that. So yeah, <laughs> I thought I'd set the bar high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm like, geez, how do I live up to that? Here's your chance to prove yourself. So my first question, you describe your practice as being grounded in the early writings on philosophy, theology, alchemy and the natural sciences. And it explores the mutability of reality and language. 
I wondered if you could expand on that and how these variables influence your practice. Hmm. I mean, I think, you know, it's definitely there in the background of my work. This practice, I guess, is kind of this ongoing project. It's been going on for maybe 14, 15 years now. And my work is kind of about language in general. I mean, and how we read images, how images are built, how we interact with the world, how we read the world around us. So the kind of um, the beginning of that for me, a lot was kind of looking back at how we viewed the world in the past. Um, So I kind of became quite obsessed with this uh, Jesuit philosopher, Anthanasius Kirchner, and he was kind of considered the last man who knew everything. He was just this fascinating character that kind of wrote about everything, but he was always like fantastically wrong but oh, so close to being right. He was trying to, I guess, discuss the world and describe the world and understand the world, but under sort of the umbrella of religion. See what I mean? He couldn't kind of go, oh, this is actually really science. It kind of had to be, oh, this is science-ish, but a bit more God. So it was quite difficult. So his his ideas are always warped. And I think that's kind of an interesting like analogy, I guess, for, for everyone, that we're always kind of constantly pushing what is perceived into a little box of our understanding or current thinking or current trends even, you know? Um, And you can see it on a daily basis with people around us, like social media kind of warping how people view and and the ideas of beauty. And this, well, this has been going on for centuries and centuries, like uh, the ideas of beauty. But, um, you know, you can just see people's thinking being warped and, you know, to sort of use a bit of a buzz term, like we are in this post-truth world now, you know, where no one kind of believes anything. I know I thought it's terrible. I'm like, that's fine. You know, it might not be. But um, I think we know what will happen if we do, if aliens do come down, we'll be like, nice try. <laughs> you know, just walk <laughs> off and not believe it. But um, but I'll give you an example of Kirchner's kind of a thinking. My favourite one is that he kind of put forward that the moon controls sea levels, which we kind of know today. Like, yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, but his thinking was that it was moon sprites beamed down from the moon and filled up the water <laughs> and it went back home again. So you're like, so, so close, but so, so insanely wrong. <laughs> a lot of my early research and reading, he would crop up a lot of it. So he's kind of, he's a fascinating character that way. But I also, I just thought it was, it was a brilliant way of sort of looking at our own ignorance and not that there's anything wrong with being wrong. It's kind of a fantastic thing to be wrong. Sometimes wrong thinking is is, is great for art. If you're doing right thinking with art all the time, it's probably boring art. You know, you, you got to get a bit wrong to get good work, I think. And um, you know, just, just you got to be a little bit ignorant as well to make art. I think if, you, if you're too on the ball and too smart, you know, especially with painting, <laughs> it's probably going to be bad painting because you know painting has to be a bit dumb. It has to be a bit kind of like flinging mud in the dark and then something might happen. But if you're kind of making painting and you know you're knowing too much and you know what every brush mark means, it's like, yeah, that's that's kind of boring. It's it's like, you know, we're gonna read it and go, right. Yeah. So, you know, I guess that's kind of my interest is in that area with all sort of philosophies and you know and the ideas of alchemy and, and mixing different ideas and metaphors and languages. And as an artist and a practitioner, my, my practice is kind of grown and, and kind of enveloped more and more disparate areas as I've gotten older and I think you can't help but start sort of looking at the, the spinning void crushing towards you as time marches on ridiculously fast and you know that's kind of become a, a big theme within the work within understanding the world is like you know how, how do you understand the being a being <laughs> you know how do you understand being human like we're kind of grotesque fleshy smelly wonderful delightful creatures <laughs> You know, it's like, it's an amazing thing. Like you can look at one person and fall instantly in love with them. 
and just want to worship them and gobble them up and then you can meet another person and you just want to set them on fire and chuck them in a skip like it's just like <laughs> a bizarre human condition like and and there's no difference possibly between them apart from you know whatever's going on on this weird base level or so you know i think these are kind of like fantastic places to place art and to place painting especially because paint is disgusting and beautiful simultaneously like it's a weird medium it's it is flesh on canvas like it's just uh, it's a magical thing it's also virtually impossible to understand like i mean i've been painting like since i was like geez in my early teens painting with oils and i've been making art like a painting and drawing since i was probably at six and i would say now i suffer from way more imposter syndrome with regards painting than I did in my ignorant twenties, I would hands up be like, I don't know much about painting. Like when I get asked to do demonstrations now or teach, I just like freak out and go, no, 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 no. It's like ask someone else. I don't know anymore. And like, <laughs> yeah, I kind really. of like, it's just a really, yeah, it's just there's so much to know about it. It's so much to distill. And, you know, you kind of want to sort of impart knowledge to people, but then you also don't want to impart the crushing fact that the only thing that'll make you a better painter is just keep painting for like, hundreds and hundreds of hours like <laughs> just no secret to it it's just put your nose against a grindstone and hopefully something will happen so it's just yeah it's kind of a weird thing and actually a really weird thing happened when i was making the work for two shows ago for for the rha which is you know a very big show i was making these paintings i'd taken a couple of years back from exhibiting just to experiment and, and make new work and i remember making these paintings that were, were taking months to kind of build up and I remember kind of finally hitting a moment where I was like, oh, this is happening. This is kind of new. You could feel almost this kind of moment crumble away in front of me. I was like, this is interesting. This is new. And it felt like I was painting. <laughs> you know? Like for so long before that, it was like this, I don't know what was going on. I just didn't feel like painting. It didn't feel like it was happening. And like, I love those little moments that kind of um, happen within it. And it's, yeah, like paint is a lovely metaphor for life. It's like completely magical and and hell at the same time <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's pretty incredible that you are finding something new and interesting when you've been painting since you were a teenager that just shows like the versatility of the medium as well uh, absolutely and it's not a lie I think the longest I've ever not painted for is three months back in 2004 wow really <laughs> I know I know the time I know the time man. <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird like yeah, and I was always constantly thinking about painting the whole time. It's like it's like I made a mind wrote a really lovely text for my last publication, and he kind of comments on it like it's just this complete obsession where he's like constantly thinking about it. And I remember we were doing an interview once, and he was like, "Are you always thinking about painting?" I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Right now," and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, it's there." <laughs> it's just this like little <laughs> thing going going through images and paintings, and it's just a very odd thing. Like I think it's a mental illness, to be honest. I think we should get like some. <laughs> sick pay or something or you know yeah. <laughs> and when you're painting do you follow all the rules mm. of oil painting or do you break the rules well it's kind of an interesting question because I actually finished my BA in 2003 and the first thing I did was actually meet up with a friend of mine and we he was a, a recent graduate as well and we kind of realized we weren't taught what we wanted to know in painting because at the time we were both huge lovers of renaissance and baroque painting so we actually spent three years down in his parents house down the country in ireland and 
we just done like these seven life-size copies of, I think it was like The Last Supper, Michelangelo's Last Supper. And it was actually just to try and find how these paintings were made. Like, how were they done? Like, what were the paints they're using? And we actually found this amazing book. I'd almost call it a tome. It was a huge thing that just had all these um, beautiful cross-sections of little bits of the plaster. And in that, you could see the little paint pigments. So we're able to start piecing out these different colours that were coming up throughout all the paintings and just actually go and buy them and start mixing with them and seeing how it was done. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. And it kind of gave me this very good grounding in representation. So like I come from a representational background, like I was quite, quite skilled at that. Um, and it gave me a very good understanding of, of the rules of painting and how this stuff all goes together. And it was interesting when I exhibited in, in Belgium, the kind of art collectors and critics over there are, like, really know their stuff. And they were able to instantly pull that out. They were like, oh, I see this and blah, blah, blah. And they were able to name all these, like, you know, amazing painters I love, <laughs> like yeah, Baroque and, and Renaissance painters. And I was like, no way, they got it. There's this, like, second language to the work that if you kind of know that work, you start to see where things come from in the paintings but the best way to think about a lot of my works is that the more larger abstracted works are like exploded versions of these paintings if you were to kind of go you know macro on them like kind of go right in and, and pull these brush marks apart so that would be the kind of grounding to a lot of it and like true to knowing that stuff you know how to abuse the medium and you know how to kind of twist it but then kind of keep it in that safe realm because you know it's that funny thing that like the YBA is kind of caused was you know will your work last, should it last thing? Because most of our work just falls apart. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just can't transport it or it just like disappears. So, you know, and this is a sort of thing that you kind of, um, as a painter, like I love painting and I love the history of painting and I'd like to push the paint, but I also like to keep it in a realm where I know that this object is as good as it can be and will last. Like I don't want it to be 10 years or 50 years from now with this crack and fall apart because that feels abusive to the images I make, you know, and, and, and yet, like, fair enough, I do make some quite abusive images, <laughs> like, with regards to what's done to the paint. I mean, like, I think one of the one of the largest works in my, my recent show in Green and Red, like, is just the whole painting, this, like, big linen painting, and the whole thing was started by using what I, I lovingly call the shits, which is the kind of um, crap at the bottom of your brush <laughs> cleaning pot so it's just weird gray goo that i've always used and sometimes i'll just start a painting that way where you just grab the whole thing and just throw it at the canvas and just explodes down and you're like aha we can begin a painting now (laughs) because it's something has happened because you need something to happen for something else to happen and you know i mean i don't use drawings i don't use photographs i don't use anything so you know i need to do something and sometimes you need like a bit of violence to start the painting because I think otherwise yeah, it stays all too nice. And, you know, and again, that kind of leads me on to like my paintings are, are puzzles for me when I'm making them. That's the other element that, to start the puzzle in order to kind of keep building it. I'm very tangenty when I talk, by the way. So I'm really enjoying it. It's brilliant. <laughs> That's how my brain works. Thankfully, all very, very interesting, especially the fact that you use, what did you call it? The shits. Yes. <laughs> and I, I never should have said that, but it's followed me through. Like it's come up at other talks where people go, oh yeah, and you use this thing called the shits. And I'm like, I really shouldn't have called it that. I should have called it the drag. <laughs> but it's a good thing because it kind of contradicts a lot of the, the beauty in the work. So I think that's kind of 
a positive. Definitely. Yeah, I would never assume that just from looking at your work. But there's that violent element to it where you're kind of throwing stuff at it. It's very lean and pristine. There is a, a lot of the work would have that. Like it would be kind of, yeah, I, mean, I guess there's a duality in it. Like there is works that are a lot more refined and kind of, but even those ones that are more refined, like th- there is an act of violence in them. Like the, the, the work Cornucopia that's that's going to be in your show. I mean, that started with a, quite an act of violence oh, really? where like the, that the, well, I mean, the whole gradient is put down and it's a very pristine, beautiful, wet gradient. Then the next thing I do is grab a squeegee and just rip it through the canvas so it's kind of it's tearing the paint back up from the canvas and revealing the canvas underneath so there is this quite active violence and something quite beautiful where you could easily leave that canvas as that beautiful gradient you know what i mean it could just stay as that and that'd be good i know i know artists that do <laughs> just make gradient paintings and that's it so, and that's kind of my thing is that i get quite um agitated like i'll never stay in one place too long and you know i think once i figure out how something is done I'll kind of move on like it's it's like I remember with the two paintings that got accepted into the John Moores like I kind of cracked a little sort of way of making paintings that I knew that they'd accept and I kind of was like got bored with it I was like no that's boring now and just completely moved on from those type of works and it's just it's kind of something in my brain that likes to kind of figure something out and then go yeah that's pretty nice that's interesting and then the question always is where can this go next where can it go next and I would like to think that like maybe 30 years from now you can look back on the work I make and see sections of investigation in areas because the work can be quite disparate sometimes but I think I hope that you can look back and see that there's movement in certain areas and like those gradient paintings like they're they've been ongoing since maybe 2015 after I'd done a, I had a show in Dubai and I kind of done a research trip for it and that's where those gradient paintings came from and so that's a, a kind of long maybe seven year investigation, but there's not that many of them, you know, of those kind of gradient sort of paintings, there's maybe 15, if even, you know what I mean? Which is, is not a lot for seven years. <laughs> so the more thicker impasto work of the last maybe three or four years is kind of a new add on to that. I went super minimal for a long time. So now I'm kind of piling back on, but I guess the, the mission statement for my practice has been, to kind of build up a language that I can use to kind of describe these, you know, places, emotions, things, and trying to communicate in a different way beyond the natural means. And I think as a person and as an artist, I've always felt quite separated. Like I've never felt really part of, you know, an art movement or a clique or, you know, a group. I've always felt a little bit on the fringe. And I guess I've always liked living there because I kind of like being an antagonist with regards painting and my work but it's this kind of strange place with the idea of art you want to try and connect in that way that's beyond all those ways you can kind of connect to someone on a different level that they get to know a part of you like if you understand your work they actually get to know you on a much deeper level than anything else you get to know a hidden part of you so what first drew me to your work was this instant connection to something familiar Your paintings are steeped in traditional values and have a language that is recognisable. However, when you take time with them, there is something jarringly modern, humorous or dreamlike. This friction is so beautifully played out in your work. Do you enjoy playing with these aspects within your paintings and do you try to balance them or do you intend to tilt the scales? Mm. So I like the work to kind of, I guess, 
give you a furrowed brow or, or be incomplete or just always be a little bit off. I don't like the works to be too balanced. Like, I guess I like to put in things that are just about recognisable and sometimes they are completely recognisable, but other times they're, they're not. And I guess like um, there's a book that I was, I was quite obsessed with for a long time, which is the Voynich Manuscripts. It's this book found by Wilfred Voynich and I can't remember, it's like supposed to be written by these like these monks from like hundreds of years ago. And it's quite fascinating because in it, there's like loads of these different beautiful plants drawn, but they're all quite similar to things that exist, but not quite right. Like nothing really adds up. Like, so there are all these unknown plants and the language is completely indecipherable. Like no one's been able to crack it. And you don't know if it's actual gibberish or it's a long lost language. And then there's all these theories that migraine suffering monks made the manuscript and then there's this whole thing that it's a scam because Wilfred Voynich traded in rare manuscripts so he could have easily faked it so there's all this like beautiful lunacy around it and you know that to me is kind of like that's what a painting should be like it should give you all that in every breath that you look at it and go you know what 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 what?" you're questioning everything you're seeing you're questioning it should is stuff adding up is it not and so I like to play with that or the perspectives and you know, and then I will have more simple works that kind of like land and just let you be. But even say like the bean can paintings that I'm sending over, like they're still like the composition's off on them. Like you think that it should be like crescendoing in this beautiful <laughs> leaves, but they're all just cut off by the frame. So you get kind of maybe like four and a half leaves. <laughs> and that's not enough leaves for a plant. So it's just kind of like cuts off and it's like no more. And it kind of draws you in on the actual can that's made from like lathered paint just grabbed and physically just dragged across it, this sort of rolling belly of flesh and so I kind of like that it's things are sort of twisted that they're not quite right or they're eking out into something a bit maybe yeah just off or slightly um tilting away and so I, I guess I've always liked that and for, for me they're kind of puzzles to sort of solve when they're solved for me they're just you know they're balanced in a way that they they hang together but teetering on an edge. They're just about to go off and, and crumble into chaos. And that for me is, is when a painting is successful. So I've often worked up a painting to a point where I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's balanced. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'll have to put in something that just throws it or, or jars it and makes you kind of go, oh, why is that there? And, you know, so I think it's a kind of nice thing to play with the viewer that it gives them something more. And I think it's like the latest work I did for the show in Green and Red last year. I think it's like some of the most heavily layered work I've made. And I honestly think that you could spend like an hour on that show or two hours on that show and not see everything that is in the works. Like the more you go back to them, the more you'll see stuff just suddenly arrive or pop out. And you might use like weird little details, like a, a weird blue circle or red circle just placed in a very odd place. So there's that level of looking and engaging has been put into the works, like slow looking with the works that some of those paintings were made over nine or 10 months. You know, they're really slow engagement with them where you're like well what's the need how can i add in something what's going to be next and is if you're going to get that from five ten minutes of looking and i say five ten minutes of looking that's very generous probably about like 3.5 seconds i think is the average people look at artwork which is one of the most depressing thoughts but then for the people that love it you're making the work for people that love the work and want to stay with the work and that's you know i, I want to give them something they can come back to and, and kind of engage with over time yeah. And are you working on several artworks at the same time or do you just focus? Oh, yeah. I'd work on anywhere between seven and 12 works and then there'll be sculptures thrown in there as well. So I like to kind of just bounce around because the nice thing about making sculptures is your paintings can be up and they don't know you're looking at them. 
which is really nice. They think you're looking at the sculpture, but you're kind of having a little peek at the paintings. And that's when stuff clicks. You kind of go, ah. And it's like, it's like having someone come to your studio or, or speaking an idea out loud with a friend. You know, you're like, oh, this great idea. And then you say it and you go, oh, my God, that's terrible. <laughs> but in your head, it was like the best idea ever. <laughs> you know, that kind of happens with art. Like, you know, I've often left the studio thinking, that's it. I've cracked painting. That, you know, painting's done. People are going to know what painting is finally. And then I go into the studio in the morning and I'm like, what is that steaming pile of bullshit on the wall? <laughs> so, yeah, and then the other times you leave the studio going, that was the worst day of painting ever. I should be ashamed. I should never paint again. And you know, you come back in the next day and you go, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. You know, there's something there that frustration or failure leads on to something much better. I mean, I think art really should be made in the cloud of unknowing. You know what I mean? You shouldn't fully know what you're doing because that's just a bit boring and art should be new and it should be different and it should test your own patience and I should test other people's patience and taste and beliefs and, you know, all that. It just shouldn't be, shouldn't be that passive. Yeah, it sounds like you have quite an active amount of curiosity as well. So that curiosity that keeps you playing, that keeps you experimenting and trying new things and that kind of activates within the viewer as well. I just think I'm a cantankerous soul. Right. You know what I mean? You kind of like overanalyze everything. Like I'm an overthinker by nature, like in every sense of it. Like I'll just overthink everything. And also my brain is very backwards. Like sometimes when I try and solve something, I'll find the most complicated way of doing it because of the overthinking and stuff, which is terrible for life. Brilliant for painting. Because you just kind of, <laughs> you kind of just <laughs> overthink it and just cook it up and it all goes haywire and then you like start messing around with it. And that, that's a good thing. And I think, you know, you've you got to aim for failure. I think people, like, like one of the worst things that's going on in the world at the moment in art is professionalism. I think it's such a horrible thing. And Instagram is a real fucking dick bag for it. Sorry for cursing so much, but you can bleep that out. This is an adults-only podcast for Grant. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's kind of this kind of thing that, um, you know, this professionalism thing is really running rampant, like with all these people taking lovely photos of themselves in their studios and, you know, being all, oh my God, it's great art. And I just think it's so crappy because maybe I'm just cynical and old, but I just think that it takes away from the studio and, and people doing all these videos of them in the studio making art. I'm kind of like, I don't know if that's a really good thing because number one, how do you divide your brain up like that? You, you can't be focusing on the work if you're thinking about how good your arse looks you know, <laughs> while you're filming it. It's like, just stupid. And then the other thing is that it kind of alienates the freedom that the studio needs. The studio needs to be like the dungeon part of your brain. You know what I mean? Like the part of your brain that you kind of don't want anybody to really know about and you lie about on your first dates with people. Your studio needs to be this kind of really free place that you kind of just go in and let it all hang out. And, you know, you're allowed to fail. You're allowed to mess up. You're allowed to kind of just do stuff that you know will never be exhibited and never kind of come to anything and i just i always fear that like you know and maybe it's an unwarranted fear but i always fear that this you know professionalism and, and kind of weird thing that you know artists are supposed to be these like beautifully curated packages is kind of damaging you know i mean to be completely honest i want to live in a world where i don't know what any artists look like i don't care about your arses and i don't want to know you know, how great they look sitting on a seat with their lovely swanky Berlin trousers. You know, we just, I don't care. Like, just make some good work and let's talk about that. You know, let's get into galleries again. Because like all this virtual 
like crap is just ah, oh, it's depressing. I just want to go into a gallery and you know sniff the work, you know, and get told off by the invigilator. I'm getting too close, and we're like, that's when it's happening. <laughs> you know? Going after my own heart, there, I do the same. I love sniffing artwork. <laughs> Do you know what? I'd never really thought about all these very well curated videos and photos of artists in their studios because obviously they tidy up. 100%. They, they kind of they curate their studio to make it more palatable. But why? What are we doing that for? It's like some kind of Hollywood filter that's put onto artists to make them look a certain way so they fit in a certain box. But it's kind of like the Instagram effect. And it is professionalism. It's people trying to get out there. And I totally understand where they're coming from. Like, I wouldn't be cynical about the intentions of getting your work out there, of trying to make a career, because, dear Lord, just being an artist and staying as an artist, you should get an award. Like, it is such a tough career path and a very unforgiving one. And the longer you do it, there's kind of like almost less returns. You get less shiny you know, like people care a lot less. Like it's just, it's a natural thing that happens because, you know, we always want the new. So I do understand this kind of like, you know, like desire to get your work out there. But this kind of thing, thinking that you can do some course online about professionalizing your practice and learning about inventory, it's all garbage. Like just total garbage. Like artists shouldn't have to know that. It's like, no, it's like you, you should be, should be in the studio, knocking out to work. And people go, oh, how, how, do I, how do I get somewhere? It's like, make good work and then get lucky. Like, I hate to say it, like make good work, exhibit and get lucky. They're the, they're the three things and there's no real secret to it. So your paintings also have an earthliness about them with abstracted organic forms and rich earthy colours, but some feature sudden brush colours which pierce through them, interrupting the calm with a brute force. It reminds me of opposing forces and the struggle between man and nature. Do you agree? And is this something that you are interested in? Yeah, no, in, in a way, like, um, I think maybe not so much man and nature in that kind of traditional context of, of, you know, of an eco thing or, you know, but more so in, I think, just kind of being human and being alive in this world. And I think it's a really odd thing to think about, like, what is consciousness? Like, what are we? And these kind of like brains trapped in a, a little bit of bone jiggling about in these sort of bodies around the world. And you start thinking about perception and, and how do we experience the world? And it's so hard to sum up. Like, it's kind of a crazy thing. And if you think about like, oh, look, these doors of perception, I think it's, it's a fascinating thing where, you know, he takes acid to, to try and see like a, an artist, like a painter. And and I remember reading that the description of him staring at his, his jeans or his trousers. And, and I remember kind of going, yeah, that is actually like how I'd look at things. Like it would be this, you know, my new detail. I'd be quite fascinated by it. But it's that kind of, um, you know, how do you, talk about experience in the world and that kind of sharp shock of the world and you like it's it's a jarring thing it can be very peaceful but can also be insanely jarring because the second you bring in emotions and like these kind of weird chemical things going on in your brain it changes every experience so you can be in an amazing landscape and suddenly feel like you're panicking and that you're falling apart and that you're falling through the earth Or you can be in like a really shitty place that looks like a burning tip hole and be just having a lovely moment and be going, wow, you know, there's just a lot of beauty in this burning car. (laughs) So it's that kind of um, juxtaposition and that duality, like um, 10 points for using juxtaposition. Thank you. You It had to happen. People can play our word bingo and they'd be like, that's the winning one. Um, So like that kind of jarring thing about about experiencing and and all that. So like that for me is what that would be maybe 
an idea of that like man versus nature or you know experiencing it like how do you talk about that and and I think the jarring colors as well is is a bit of um yeah it's kind of a, it's, that'd be kind of just I guess a few different things going on in the paintings like there is a conversation around paint and the language of paint and you know using these kind of like jarring moments is is sometimes to kind of point at it being a painting to point at it being a kind of a game you know to sort of pull the viewer back out of this maybe experience or having or this emotional moment or or even just like like that lovely thing that happens in life where you're looking at this lovely scene and there might be someone walking along a beach and then this just like plastic bag comes along and just like across the person's face you know and it just completely disrupts the scene or you're having a lovely moment and you walk along and the bird shits on you you know it's just like oh and that kind of thing where you're kind of knocked out of it and it's, you suddenly have to re- reassess what you're looking at and I kind of like to do that with the paintings that sometimes it might just be a weird garish red triangle just peeking in the corner of the painting and you might not see it at the beginning and then once you notice it you can't not see it and it makes you reevaluate the picture playing I can actually flatten the image, which I find really fascinating when you kind of mess about with images like that. You can actually call attention to the fact that you're being tricked by the painting. You know, you're kind of being pulled into this three-dimensional thing. And like there's some works that I was, I was playing with in, in my last show where when you stared at one blobby object, other things would start to move forward. When you stared back at those, things are moving forward. Other things would start to recede in the painting. And it was just to kind of play with objects in space and it's kind of a nice thing that happens, you know, with the painting. So it's it's those sort of things that you want to just kind of maybe unhook the person from their moment. So there's so much movement in your paintings, whether it be loose mark making, swirling around the canvas as if the paint has come alive before our eyes, or heavily loaded oil paint sitting decadently upon the surface, piled up in monstrous proportions. Is this play with the paint an important part of your practice? How much do you plan before setting upon a canvas? It's <laughs> a very quick answer. Zero. <laughs> yeah. There's no play, which always shocks. Just like zero, we've said in very loud echoing. I put echo on that part. Um, but it's that kind of thing. No, there is no planning. And I, I usually surprises people, especially with the more raw linen pieces. But for me, it's kind of a thing that I just... I did. I actually did a really weird thing years ago. I, I just thought, oh, maybe I should plan. And I got this lovely notebook, started doing all these drawings for my paintings, even went as far as getting tracing paper and putting it over the drawings and writing in the texture that would be there, the colour and all this sort of stuff. And I made two paintings from that. And they were the two worst paintings I've, I've, I've ever made. They were like just terrible. And I just like burnt the notebook and was like, all right, that just doesn't work for me. And the reason is, is that like, I think, you know, sometimes you do a kind of scribbly sketch of something and then you try and kind of turn it into an artwork and it's just this like really shitty version of it. You kind of go, oh, I've lost that bit of magic, that bit of crap or that bit of wrongness is gone because you've you made it a bit better. That's what happens with the paintings. I, I kind of lose that little bit of off or that little bit of crappiness to them and, and something a little bit maybe honest, you know? I think honesty is not pretty. You know what I mean? That's it's, it's kind of a thing. Like, honest is not a it's not a, a very comfortable place. It's not a very nice place. It's a very beautiful place because it's honest, but it can kind of contains all these different elements. And I want my paintings to be honest, and and that's why they're just made straight on the canvas, and there's like no prep done. I might just be like, oh, I, I want to make a gradient painting today, or I might not know at all. I might just throw the sheets of the, the, of the paints onto the canvas. And, and I'm like, right, that's where we're beginning. And, you know, this can be quite a slow process or it can be a super fast one. And, you know, then it's just an engagement with it. And 
and that's how it happens and i kind of i don't know i, I love making work that way like it can be frustrating at times because you're kind of chasing ghosts but you know it's, it's a lovely way to be to not have that pressure of a predetermined outcome and for me it's an adventure and i think that hopefully comes true in the work that there is that air of curiosity because i have it while making it like and i don't i can't answer the, the paintings artist talks when i give them like in shows are usually a bit shit because people don't learn anything about the paintings because i have no answers i can tell you all the backstories and i can tell you what i was eating that day or what music i was listening to but you know i can't tell you why i mean that that's the beauty of art it shouldn't have an answer like it should just be a question like answers are for you know scientists and stuff it's like yeah let them suck the magic out of everything we kind of touched on before we started recording what you're listening to when you're painting (laughs) (laughs) tell me Uh, what do you listen to while you're painting i listen to very heavy metal (laughs) (laughs) i just love it like i guess this would never have guessed i know i know it's it's, people don't realize like they always think that i I guess listen to something nicer well i tell you like i don't know i don't know what people think um but i do remember meeting um this uh like buyer for the opw and she's a really lovely woman and she never met me and she's uh, been buying the work for the opw of mine for, for years and um i finally met her just last the christmas before last because <laughs> i was in the i was in green and red and she was there and she we shook hands and she was like oh that's you and i was like yeah and she goes oh i, I thought you'd be more kind of you know poetry looking <laughs> <laughs> i was like yep sorry to disappoint you i'm from bray like, nope but i guess the work maybe is it kind of has a little bit of that feeling but like for me making the work it's it's kind of about getting back to that place of freedom that i've spoken a lot about i guess on so far and you know for me i listen to music when i'm painting generally from you know maybe the mid 80s to kind of like early 2000s and it's this kind of weird little formative years pocket of music and like I'm obsessed with music as well but I absolutely love it and it's, you know I'm jealous of music and I don't think art and painting can do what music can do and I think my paintings are always chasing that they're always chasing that emotional kick that kind of music has you know it's instant it just hits you and but for me you know the, the music from these formative years it brings me back into that headspace of, of freedom and possibility and like when you were a teenager you felt like anything was possible you know, until you got older and it gets crushed out of you and you realize everything's really hard and <laughs> expensive and a bit shit <laughs> you know when i'm in the studio and listen to that music like it really brings me back to that place and and for me that's the best place to make art because you believe you honestly believe for the, for those few hours that anything is possible and that's so insanely important for making art because you have to believe that because otherwise why would you do it and also there's an adrenaline kick to it. There's kind of um, catharsis to it that like, you know, it reconnects me with emotions from the past. And like a lot of my work is directly connected to emotions. It is kind of about trying to connect to those feelings and those places. And, and kind of, it kind of loops around with the idea of what it is to be human, what it is to exist. Like we're kind of constantly surrounded by ghosts of our past. You know, I thought COVID is a really amazing time for that. Like it really was, like for me anyway, being confronted with these emotional ghosts from the past. You know, I was having weird feelings I hadn't had in, in 20 years. I was like, what the hell? Like, you know, thoughts I hadn't had in years. And, you know, it was this kind of collective stop that we all did. And for me, I think that's quite a fascinating thing that we're constantly being 
haunted by memories, by feelings, by, you know, you, you get hit by a smell walking in the road and you might nearly fall over because it reminds you of a, a long lost love from your teenage years. You're like, holy shit. And it's just like, it's like being sideblinded by, by the world. And it's, it's also, it's like parallel universe that just hits you. Like, cause it's fully existing for those few moments. So I think they're kind of fascinating things. And music does that for me. It kind of takes me on journeys. Like it, it kind of can give you memories or feelings that you've never had. Like I remember there's certain songs I listen to and I go, oh my God, that makes me nostalgic for a, I'm like, no way, I don't have a memory for this, but it makes you nostalgic for a time you never had. And that's like messed up, like, you know, and it's kind of a strange thing. Like, and I think that kind of feeling of a, I think it's called deja vu or something where you kind of actually have this feeling of deja vu, but it's something that didn't exist. That's kind of, yeah, yeah. I think it's a kind of really weird, slippery place. Like I kind of like that idea of, of like, how does that kind of merge? So it's that kind of funny thing. I love, but I like those contradictions. I mean, that idea of, of, of the work being made, like, you know, with a soundtrack that's like extremely heavy, you know, and this, this work that's coming, it's quite emotional and beautiful. It's this lovely juxtaposition that I always want the work to have. Like I wanted to have these kind of unyielding feelings within it. Your ceramics, they're quite a relatively new part of your practice and they take form in thinkers and grinners and beautifully made painted vases can you tell me about how they came about and why you chose to work with that material as well yeah it all goes back much further than you think it goes back to around 2013 2014 where i actually applied for an arts council grant to sort of make sculpture and i got the grants i got quite lucky to get it and i was like great and i spent an entire year experimenting and then i looked at it all and i was like this is all dreadful it was really really bad work and i had to write this report back to the arts council going i'm really sorry it was all shit and i just exhibited a lot of paintings instead because they were actually okay but this it just didn't work out and they were fine about it. they were like that's what the money's for so it's always been there in my head and actually a lot of people don't know is that my mfa show back in 2008 actually had an entire um 3d element to it there's these like little models i made they were kind of like a bit Jake and Dina's Chapman-y. They were kind of like these weird little rafts and brains and weird trees with organisms going around them. Yeah, there's like a load of them. The whole center of the exhibition space had them. And the day before the show opened, I just pulled them all. I was like, no, they're actually damaging the paintings. They were kind of taken away from them. They were misdirecting the paintings too much. You know what I mean? They were making the paintings maybe feel a little bit childish or impish. And I kind of wanted to stay away from that. So so it's, it's kind of been there in the background for a long, long time, but just kind of maybe about three or four years ago, I kind of just felt burnt out. Like I'd done five solo shows in the space of about two and a half years. It was like, that was in Dublin, in LA, in Belgium, you know, it was kind of, it was like a lot, they were all over the place. So it kind of was just hitting this point where I was like, I've just been making new work constantly and I haven't been experimenting so i just kind of felt this build-up of ideas and and the ideas started to affect the paintings so i started trying to push in these new ideas into the paintings that were just damaging them and i kind of knew that i had to reinvigorate the practice and let out these ideas in a different way and for me it was just it was the natural step is clay like clay is is so beautifully like paint but then it's got one advantage of of over paint as a medium it's quite a simple direct medium you know what i mean like you're working with your hands like for me especially it's it's kind of a to b to c there's no diversion like i start it it happens it finishes and whether it works or it doesn't where paintings for me are like being punched in the face for nine months 
non-stop. Like, it's just a battle. (laughs) It's an enjoyable battle at times, but it is a battle where ceramics for me are just this very peaceful, blissful, just, you know, you, you flow with it. Now, in saying that, the painted vases are like being punched in the face and kicked in the balls at the same time because they're just an absolute nightmare to make but i love them i think the results are really nice but they're just really tricky but that's why they're, they're so slow to make because you're trying to do a painting in three dimensions so it's kind of a head fuck <laughs> you know it's just like your brain hurts trying to do it but um, and you want to keep them lively and simple it's 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 kind of a, a tricky dance but all the other sculptural works kind of are, are a lot more direct and and they also they let out kind of different ideas and, and different parts of my personality so like the grinners kind of you know, quite directly poke a finger at my sort of obsession with death and, and what happens after you die. Because I'm insanely obsessed with that. Even even though one of my friends explained to me what happens when you die, and that didn't help. But it was, it was, it was quite interesting. She was kind of going, do you remember before you were born? And I was like, no, not really. She goes, it's just more of that. And I was like, so true. Yeah, you don't remember before you're born? You just, like, you just go back to that state. <laughs> it didn't help, surprisingly. But, yeah. but even when you think about that stuff, it flips your head. Not existing. You didn't exist up until a point. It's just like, oh, start getting those existential dreads. But um, so it's just kind of being able to poke at that and poke at that weird relationship I think Irish people have to death. It's a sort of strange dance we have with and we're, we're quite a melancholic country and I find that that runs through all my paintings and especially these works is this kind of melancholy, kind of humorous, loving, sort of poetic dance that kind of is a sort of an Irish identity. And um, yeah, I kind of I like that. But then I like mixing sort of metaphors and ideas. So like the Grinners have this idea of like a golden grill, which is quite a rap thing. And, you know, it's like these ideas of these little collectibles as well. You know, I quite like that. You know, these kind of like even the sort of like the cats that wave their hands, warding off evil. These are kind of, my little tropish version of that, but they were mixing a lot, you know, plushies and all these other weird collectibles. So they sort of layer loads of disparate ideas quite simply and just, they just be. And I quite like that. And it's, you know, how much you want to read into them is up to yourself, but I quite like these kind of little touchstones they kind of have in it. Because I'm kind of obsessed with the idea like of desire and the futility of desire. And that's what like the crying men, like kind of gilded in gold or, or kind of this like still life piece there for after ever, they're kind of they're playing on these ideas of, of desire, like this this want. I mean, because desire is such a funny thing. Like desire is a beautiful emotion when you have it. It's really it drives you and it's like invigorating. But then you get to think and you kind of just go, meh. You just go, what was that about? I mean, you're waiting for those pair of trainers to arrive. You're like, oh my god, I can't wait. And then you arrive, you go, yeah, they're pretty nice. And that's it. That's all it was. And then you wear them out, and then you get a bit of mud on them, and you go, ah, yeah. Like, I know they're going to start to die. And it's, it's a weird thing, like, but desire drives us all. And it, it's this kind of thing that pushes us forward. So I kind of, I really enjoy that, like, futility of it. Say, like, that you're talking about the heads, the thinkers and stuff, that the heads are kind of much more newer. And, and I guess they're kind of like just, I like the idea of like different mythologies and, you know, like the kind of green man and, and things like that and, and merging them with kind of tropes of horror because I'm quite interested in in horror and that kind of idea of the grotesque and, and sort of, you know, again, like I love gold and gold is a stunning thing. So I actually held the, 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 the ceramics with real gold and it is that kind of, if someone handed you a thousand quid in your hand, like you feel that, like you feel the, the power of it. I think gold has that and it's a really fascinating thing. And I think it's a real duality to life because it's it simultaneously holds life, but also holds a kind of death of life in it. You know what I mean? It's kind of a dangerous thing. Like it can easily just usurp 
the niceness and moments and with the heads they're kind of like a riff on that like a mix and an obsession with kind of that we have with horror like i think that's an amazing thing so you know that's kind of wrapped up in these works it's kind of like how your personality is created and these contradicting elements and i guess the ceramics i want to try and bring in the idea of the heavy metal that it's, it's a quite contradicting thing to the work mm. But it's also part of it. It's it's completely part of my personality. And like the last show I just did, like that, I made a, a like a lathe cut vinyl for it. That was music that I'd made over the last kind of year and a half. And again, it's trying to talk about world building, emotion. You know, it's also trying to talk about how you let go of a really close friend. You know, I mean, like one of my best friends passed away a good few years ago now, but I would have made music with him my whole life. And it's that kind of thing. Like, how do you let go of someone? Like, how do you say goodbye to them? you can't you know they're, they're part of you forever but it's these kind of conflicting emotions where you know you laugh about the times you had you get frustrated with them and like how do you express that in a painting or in art and I, I don't think you can but I think you can kind of hint at it through disparate elements you know what I mean like if you have like bits of ceramic bit of bits of music bits of painting and they're kind of all just dance around together and, and you hopefully the people get an overall feeling of something a bit more or something a bit different. And yeah, that's my rambling answer to ceramics. I don't know if that went anywhere. <laughs> I can't remember whether we were talking about this before we started recording or not, but you said earlier that all art is a self-portrait or some kind of a self-portrait. And I think that that is very, obviously very true for your artwork because you're bringing all these kind of different sides of your own personality, of your own interests and integrating them trying to find some balance and harmony but also these kind of Mm. jarring elements within your practice yeah no it kind of is and I think it's sort of important for me to kind of scratch those itches and keep it fresh and I guess it's quite it's quite a selfish practice in the end you know it is you know it's generally just about pleasing myself and kind of doing things I enjoy um, but making them work like it's a challenge to try and balance these but I think it is also about challenging the practice like, can I get the ceramics to work with the paintings? Can I get like a kind of a, an idea of music, which is very abstract, to work with the paintings? And not that you'd put headphones on and listen to them. That is an option if you want. You can do that. But the idea of, you know, talking about ideas in a different way. So making the record for me was talking about that, like, beautiful fugitive process like when you're a teenager like I used to play in bands as a teenager and in my early 20s and we would we just record music would release it on a little cd with a paper made cover and you know our, our mates would buy it and maybe a few people you didn't know and and that was it that was the process from beginning to middle to end and there was no overarching feeling of making it or communicating beyond that bubble and there was something so freeing about that I kind of wanted to get back to that little process again where you make something that has not really art related like I wouldn't consider it a piece of art I consider the project kind of an art project in the sense that I want to examine and discuss the idea of it but I also like that world building where you're kind of making the music you're kind of making the record you're releasing it and people buy it and it's the end journey is that it's in their hands in their house and that's kind of a beautiful little thing to do and it's also for me it was nice to take away that weight that comes with making paintings like there's a weight to them you know when I make them they kind of they've got a history they've got like an expectation you know I've got expectations of them where just had no expectations and, and I kind of like the idea that like you know people might not like it <laughs> like it's kind of a nice thing you're just like man 
you know, and then, you know, you might get one or two people that kind of love it. And that for me kind of means so much more than, than anything else that you could connect to them in that little way, in a different way, again. And I, I think the ceramics are, are that way as well, that they're kind of a different way of speaking about things. But, you know, if, if any of this makes sense, it's not really for now to decide. You know what I mean? That that's, I always think, is, is, is a future thing. I think, you know, we can, can we see things now? I don't know. Because you're kind of experiencing them right now. So it's kind of like history, I think, kind of sorts that out. Or even like a couple of years later, you might think back and go, oh, God, that kind of worked or it stayed with you. I think that's the biggest thing. But art is everywhere around us. And like you should be grabbing from everything. And like, because I think, you know, artists should be sieves. They should be soaking it all up. They should be sponges and, you know, taking it all in and, and, and regurgitating out this, you know, life pie, <laughs> you know, full of all different weird things. Like, you know, so. so your presentation always surprises me. From subtle ceramic fingers, which protrude your framed canvases to your ornate plinths and wall-mounted shelves for your ceramic works. I really enjoy that you put so much thought into the presentation of the works, which often comes as an afterthought for so many artists. Do you plan the whole concept in advance or does it come after so that the artwork feeds into the display? They're kind of the same. They're like one and the same, if you know what I mean. They grow together. But like the plinths and that element of it comes from, I'd work as an art tech. So I absolutely despise plinths. Like I hate them. I hate them so much. I, like a white plinth, I just want to kick it over and I want to slap the artist. I'm going to go, don't do that to your work. Like, don't. <laughs> Unless you can get stunningly made plinths, then it's okay. But most people can't because they cost an arm or a leg and they get bashed and they get, like, you know, things. And, and also, like, if you're going to put that much time into the object, you know, think about what it goes on. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I find it a really weird thing. Like, it's just like, why not? And fair enough, maybe it's not important to people and that's actually fine. I'm probably being a bit of a fascist talking like that, but it's just, you know, I find it, like for me personally, I've always found it, I just hate plinths. That's the only reason those plinths happened was because I knew I had to display the objects. <laughs> like, honestly, and I was like, I have to display these. And I was like, oh, I fucking hate white plinths. Like, absolutely hate them. And now I'm lucky enough that I would have worked as a metal worker with my dad in my teenage years and early 20s. So I had a little bit of competency with metal and understanding it as a medium. So, you know, it slowly just grew that with the Grinners, I was, well, I want them to be on a pedestal, not a plinth, if you know what I mean. So I kind of was like, right, brass plinths. And then the cushion came out of this idea of what is he sitting on? And then I was like, I had it for ages. It was going to be a lovely piece of, of mahogany wood. And then I was like, oh my God, that's so shitty. And I spent a fortune getting all these samples and trying them out. And they were all, they were all terrible. I was like, oh my God. I was like, just go back. And then, you know, it just hit me like as a cushion. And then I was like, it's like a little mini bumpy painting. And it just beautifully all gelled together that suddenly this like little grinner is sitting on like a little linen painting. And it's just such a nice kind of folding in of ideas and, and then kind of notions of materiality started to enter into the work. So to keep the plate standing, I was like, how am I going to do that? Cause they're really thin. And then I was like, Oh, I just want to make a big cast concrete foot. Cause it's kind of horrific and a bit gross. And you know, that, so these ideas just started flowing and, then with the the lovely kind of uh, painted vases, I was like, well, I just want them on like rusted metal stands. Again, just to contradict them and and to talk about this materiality and this idea of decaying and worlds because like the vases have this like sort of idea with them that like the way I like to think of them is they're kind of these weird little urns or vases that are sort of placed in a place. 
and they take the memory of the place onto them. You know, there's that kind of theory of, of sort of buildings inhabiting like their memories or, or the people that were in them. And I like the idea that the, these vases are kind of like taking on this memory of this other paint world. And then this kind of idea of displaying them on these corroding, wasted stands is just this nice sort of way, of, I guess, yeah, think of it as maybe sort of slightly post-apocalyptic thing. And, and again, like thinking about how these how all these objects interact with each other is the materiality. And that's why the paintings, the paintings were never framed before the ceramics arrived. And once the ceramics arrived, I was like, no, the paintings suddenly have to be framed. They just didn't work unframed. Like, it's really odd. I wouldn't be a framer of paintings normally, but it's just that with the ceramics, they needed that materiality and the paintings needed to be signaling that they're finished. Because my paintings always play with this idea of not almost not being finished. And if you take away the frames, they still live in that phase. But the second you put on a frame, it kind of says, okay, we're done. And it also gives them this nice, beautiful, like solid oak frame that suddenly communicates really nicely with the brass and linen. They talk to each other where without that, they don't talk that well. So it was almost like this little decoder or translator <laughs> put around to work to make them start communicating. So you know, there is this sort of slow buildup of how things are going to be, but there's no big plan. There's no like, oh, this is, it's a problem that needs to be solved each time. And that's how I like to think about the work. I like to try and kind of go, okay, how do we solve this and and, and make something from it instead of just kind of going, ah, oh, just whack it on a white plinth because that would just depress me. But you know, that's from installing, you know, tons of shows and seeing this time and time again, fail the work. You know, you take it some raggedy plinth from, you know, like five shows ago and shove it in the room and you stick the thing on it and you're just like, oh, it just the work dies on it. You're like, it's really sad. And just, you know, and how much how much time do you spend on the work? And now, fair enough, I'm in a lucky position that I have the ability and uh, to do all that stuff. I know some artists don't and they'd have to pay for it and that's a big headache. And like, I do everything in-house. So I'm quite lucky that way that like, the only reason I get to make publications is that I designed them all myself. So don't, don't pay anyone. <laughs> so, you, know, you keep the costs under, you know. And also I love that stuff. Amazing control freak. So I enjoyed, I enjoyed the process of all that stuff. It's a kind of, a, it's a nice thing. And yeah, so I guess there is and isn't the plan. I mean, the, the fingers, like they came about quite naturally in that I was like making fruit to go on the ground, all this kind of like white ceramic fruit to go below one of the paintings. And I was just rolling the clay and I suddenly just looked like one of my fingers like it was really weird I was like oh that actually kind of looks like my fingers and I just started twisting and turning and sculpting it and then suddenly I was like oh fingers that's nice and just the idea started clicking so I'm kind of like an idiot in the dark to be honest you know what I mean like I'm just fumbling around <laughs> and sort of like capitalizing on something that happens and go, oh, that's kind of interesting and and that's what that's what, that gets me high like I consider myself as an artist a bit of a like a crackhead and a junkie like I like a risk and I like a thrill and if, they, if those things aren't there I won't do it. And, you know, the gamble has to be the show. So I kind of need those two things to get excited and make work. If I don't have them, I just won't make art. I'll just go off and do something else. But, you know, once those elements are there, I get excited. And the fingers for me were that thing that I was like totally jazzed about just having one cusp of painting. So I didn't even tell my Dublin gallerist about that. Like he went home and I was installing the show. <laughs> he came back in. It's so funny. He didn't know about them. And he had a, a gallerist visiting from a really good gallery in New York. And neither of them knew about it. And they're walking in the show. And the gallerist was like, what the fuck is that? And Jerome was like completely caught off guard. He was like, what? And he didn't know. I was just putting up the little shelf to hold the record. And I came in. And he was like, uh, Damien, then do you want to tell us about these fingers? 
<laughs> it's like, yep. And I just wanted this idea, this kind of like something coming from beyond touching the work. And and also just like that, that, that piece was called Touch. And it's just that play and that idea, wanting to touch a painting or, you know, the hands of the creator and, and also pointing, like pointing in the direction of something. So all these little ideas that can could be dispersed around it. And I also got the nicest compliment I've ever gotten by that New York artist where he was just pointing at the finger going, that, that's the weirdest thing I've seen in about 10 or 15 years. <laughs> and I was like, I'm taking that to the bank. I'm like, I'll die happy with that comment. <laughs> and again, but in an exhibition sense, I like the exhibition to be a piece of work. I don't want that it to be just, oh, here's 10 new paintings by Damien Flood. I want it to be a show that you go see. And that stuff st- talks to each other and communicates and does something more than the individual work. And the fingers for me were that. They were like a little piece to throw you. But you might not see them at first. You might just be standing, looking at a painting, and you're like, why is there a finger there? You're just like arching down. And, and the fingers had too many knuckles sometimes. They might have four knuckles. So they're kind of distended and kind of horror-like. And just like all these, and the 22-karat gold nails. So they're kind of just a little bit odd. And they kind of just make you go, why? And that's what I wanted. And then you might go see another painting and, you know, like that one, the finger's actually gripping the painting. And that feels intrusive and cheeky and a bit like you shouldn't. You shouldn't be go poking a painting. You you shouldn't do that to it. And it's kind of going over this lovely frame. And, you know, so I like kind of playing with those ideas and, just throwing a spanner in the works, just making it kind of be something a little bit more. And they're small things. It's, it's never a big gesture. My first idea was like, oh, maybe I'll have hands gripping and holding the paintings. And then I'm like, oh, that's a terrible idea. It's so cheesy. And, you know, it becomes a statement. I might never do that again. I might never put fingers on the walls ever again. But that was for that moment was that that was a thing. <laughs> it's like that worked. It was interesting. Like, And the show is called Dig. So, you know, like to dig is a kind of, pull stuff up from the earth to grab at it to dig a little deeper in ideas so you can actually also throw a dig at someone just to mock them or slag them so there's all those kind of little plays with the word with the work and those elements that you're kind of digging at the show a bit with the fingers i was really excited to see that little finger it really took me by surprise it's a really nice little detail that bridges your ceramics and your painting together even more well, that's something I've been trying to do with the work as well. So, I mean, with one of the large works in the back wall called Hanging Garden, I had these big ceramic leaves that were actually bolted into the top of it. And it's that kind of idea of like, how do you bridge these two things? So like the RHA show, there's a piece called Landscape Gardener. And I just had a little figure sitting up on the top of it. And like some people didn't even see it. You know, they just seen the whole show and they didn't notice it. And that piece actually had no frame, but I had a guy sitting on top of it. And I had a brass strip running down the side of it. And only if you examined the guy and looked around the side would you actually see the brass strip because it's facing against the wall. So there's these kind of little plays for the viewers. So if you're one of those people that sniffs paintings and examines them, you're going to get these rewards. If you're a person who just blasts through the show, you're not going to see the guy, you're not going to see the side, you know. And that's how I like to play it. Like, so like, I kind of like putting these little details in that you, know, you might never see, and you know, or you might see them straight away, who knows. So I'm curious about how do you bridge the ceramics and the paintings without it becoming a kitsch thing or a, oh he's the guy who does the ceramic leaves on top of the painting you know that's that's kind of boring but how do you kind of start to merge them and let them talk to each other a bit more you do work in a large and a small scale and I've wondered whether you work differently depending on the size of the canvas and what those different sides can bring to a piece you said that you don't plan at all 
what you're going to paint. So how do you decide what size canvas you're going to work on? That's kind of quite an arbitrary decision, to be honest. I, I just, well, honestly, it's kind of dumb. Like I'll just go, oh, I'll make five 150 by 125 paintings. They're just sizes. And I go, okay, that's going to be nice to work on. And the nice thing about it is that, you know, when you're working on something small, it's kind of harder to activate them in a way than it is large ones. And also, you know, when you're working on small, it's your wrist. Then you scale up it to your elbow. Then you scale up to your shoulder. So those movements change. And then, you know, when you're like, if you're working on something, a diptych that's three meters wide, you know, suddenly you're like, I have to get this whole thing to work. I have to get this thing to talk to itself. And, you know, say with large, heavily layered paintings, simple things like the volume of paint you need to activate that much canvas and you know and also <laughs> this is a really like funny thing that when you're doing a small painting and you go yeah i'm gonna do this background a kind of weird off blue and you just go blah, 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 and it's done then if you're working on uh, say a five foot painting you're like yeah i'm gonna do this background a really nice cheeky blue and then you start it and go that's eh, a kind of weird blue i'm not too sure about this blue i don't know about that this is a kind of shit blue it's a lot more gray and I realized, oh, this is a bit dark, isn't it? And the thought process is too long. Like you just, you go through this whole thing. And by the time you get to the bottom of the canvas, you're like, this is just crap. You know, so it's, it's, it, it's a different challenge than, you know, working small, you get to knock out the idea, but then it can be trickier to activate it and make it more interesting. When they're larger, you just kind of, it's the whole logistics of it go out the window and your, your biggest brush is now small. There's so simple things you can't do. Like I, I change the surfaces I work on a lot. Like I work on like like raw linen. I'll work on reverse black prime canvas. And again, these things operate differently. So with those two ones in particular, I like the canvas to be the main player. So suddenly your decision-making is finite. You've only got X amount of decisions you can make before you hit stalemate or checkmate. It's kind of like you're done. You can't do anything more to it because the whole canvas is just going to be covered in paint. So it's about what's not there. It's about what's between the lines. And that's a different game than if I was to do a gradient where the gradients can be quite slow. But then to say the heavily layered paintings, they're kind of not easier, but you get to dig about more. You get to kind of put more in and layer up. And But then say the larger heavily layered paintings, they almost work in the same fashion as them because the backgrounds are players. You know, they need to kind of keep a certain level to them so you know but then say mid-range works you can just keep on painting over just erasing painting erasing painting and again you get much more different works from that so if a painting's not working for me i'll just erase it or chop it up i'll just bolt out entire areas and leave one little lumpy bit of painting and they might go through 50 or 60 different you know incarnations before they actually arrive somewhere and like, that's no word of a lie like i've had paintings kind of like live in the studio for two or three years before they actually finally i'm like it's done <laughs> you know? so, so if you ever scan them you'll have all these like weird failures lurking behind them but but there will be something from that and i've always liked the idea because it's kind of like the moon or the earth and that it's scarred from what's happened to it from meteorites hitting it to human shitting all over it it's got a lot of different layers too and i like that about it in a way there's a an archaeological dig going on in it you're looking at the scars of the painting and again that's a beautiful thing about oil paint that it, it kind of remembers what's happened to it 
be it a good thing or a bad thing, it's there on the canvas. And that's quite like the human body. You've got to learn to love your scars and your warts and the weird things to start growing on you as you get older. You know, it's kind of like, oh, he's got to become part of you. And paintings are kind of like that when you keep on layering, they kind of grow and change, and fail and succeed. And... So on a personal level, how do you think the art world compares between Ireland and the UK? Mm, we touched on this beforehand (laughs) (laughs) we did we had a cheeky free recording chat well my theory my theory on ireland is that it's kind of a galapagos island (laughs) so because there's a lot of weird stuff going on and there's not a lot of trends because it's too small of a place to really gain trends because people are kind of fighting for i guess their own little plot of land and i always love that about the painting scene in ireland is so varied like there's just people doing crazy stuff and i love it and all types of art not just painting like all, all the different types of art just some fantastic artists and the thing that breaks my heart is that the country's too small to hold them. So they end up going away and, and, and doing great things abroad. But um, you know, there's not a lot, a lot of opportunity in Ireland in that regard. And I think that's probably the biggest difference between England and Ireland is that you know, there's so much more opportunity with galleries and I think education and communities. And I think if you grew up in London, you have a different mindset, you have a different energy. I think there's a, they see the people from their see the world differently, where I think you know, Ireland breeds a different type of person. But I think, you know, maybe Irish people is a bit more looking inside or something into themselves. Not in a navel-gazing way, but maybe in a kind of more romantic way or something. But um, I would say that I don't think England tends to have any interest in Irish artists because there's not enough difference. You know what I mean? But there's there's, a, there's too much similarities maybe because we're quite similar um, yeah, language-wise, culture-wise, like just so much similarity. So I don't think it's as um, extreme as, say, you go to Berlin. I think the painting scene in Berlin is kind of wild. I think it's almost too unruly. I think then say England is a bit more in between that. And then I do think that Ireland, especially when I went through art college, Ireland was very much into its painting is bullshit. When I went to college, like it's just like, why are you painting? Why are you painting? Why are you painting? But the good thing about that was that it made you fight your position. So you knew exactly why you're painting. You're forced to, you're forced to really hold it together and, and dig deep and, and i always appreciate that and i think it is something to do with the irish mentality where we get something and we want to jump five steps ahead we don't let things grow naturally it's quite a negative for ireland like like the irish painting scene has kind of been going from strength to strength for about i'd say a good eight years now and the institutions are so slow to catch on to this like they could have done a, an amazing painting show five years ago and it would have been like, oh my God, like new Irish paintings happening. And it's just like, no. And they still haven't done it. <laughs> You're kind of going, you know what I mean? And it's just kind of sad. And that's that's kind of part of the Irish art scene, to be honest. Like it's just, it's like people generally looking in the wrong directions in my mind. You know, and also you wouldn't get something like Margate happening in Ireland. Like it's amazing to see, you know, Margate sort of grow and become this new little cultural hub and it's kind of a necessary thing to happen and it's really exciting that's probably i think one of the most exciting things i've seen happen since viner street <laughs> you know like where it's just like little explosion of things happening and i was like i was like shit man stuff's happening you know <laughs> like and they, you just don't get that in ireland like there just isn't the collectors in ireland there isn't the institutional support that's not a slight against them that's just the reality like they don't have the money, they don't have the funding. And, you know, it, it's a slide against the government because they're so blind to it. You know, they can't see what is culture. They can't see what is important for people. Our government are just very ignorant and kind of believe like, if you don't have money, you just haven't worked hard enough. That's literally what some of the politicians think. And it's just disgusting as they sit there 
and watch their favorite movie and read their favorite book and look at their favorite piece of art and you're kind of go hey do you think that got there dipshit <laughs> you know I mean? it didn't fall out of a tree you know it's like so what do you enjoy most about your practice um freedom just that's it freedom that's the most succinct answer you've given wow yeah, just freedom i could rattle on about that but i think i've spoken about it quite a bit <laughs> it is just freedom to do what i want and it's something that i've cherished from the very beginning that I've been lucky to work with people that, you know, um, have supported that along the way and have, have given me the opportunities to actually do it and, and, you know, not question me too much. It's been something I've had to do, you know what I mean, to be honest. I don't know if a lot of people talk about it. Maybe people deny it. It's not cool. But for me, it's cathartic. It's mental health. It's, you know, it's like going to the gym. I need to do it. I need to go to the gym. I need to go to the studio. That's what keeps me sane and buoyant and without it. Like it's not worth it. It's a job then. It's a job you end up hating. And there's nothing worse than ruining something you love. I've worked with writers for many years. And when I work with them, I want them to make a piece that kind of talks around the work and kind of can maybe inform it. And and I guess that's something we haven't touched on in this podcast. Actually, that's a big part of, of my practice is kind of working with writers and making publications that kind of expand on the notion of how do you write about painting? Like, how do you talk about it? And, you know, it's a difficult thing to speak about. But if you get a good writer that you just give them free reign, they, they inevitably come up with something just, like, fantastic and unusual. And, you know, being very, very lucky, Sue Rainsford has wrote some beautiful, very visceral, abstract pieces. And mm. James Merrigan, very lucky to work with, like, a good few times over, over the last 14 years. And he'd always just, like, cutting bizarre works that if you don't pull no punches or just really nice and you know as i've worked with like mary comedy's wrote a few nice pieces and they're just people that kind of write unusual things and i think these are interesting ways to talk about practices and what you do a lot of those writings are available to read on your website aren't they yes there's a good few of them on it and you know the thing is you can purchase the publications on the website as well but it's always like if people are interested they can just be sent <laughs> it's just no money in them you're just gonna go there you go but but a lot of the texts are on on the website and the videos as well and and there's actually my website chronologically goes all the way back to i think 2010 so you can go back to all the shows and group shows as well so you can actually watch the progression from back then all the way through i guess when i made the website me and my friend designed it and we were kind of like what is a website now because for years i never had one and i was like what is a website next everybody's on instagram everybody wants to see the now 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 so for me like I'm just interested in the idea of cataloging and kind of like looking after it as a giant project. So it's, it's a nice way of looking after that and keeping it there as something people can engage with, and especially young painters coming up. I think it's a lovely resource for them to have to kind of look back and go, that's interesting that he started here and went there and to know that that is okay and you should do it. You should push it and trash it and burn it and make something you hate because then you might be in the going in the right direction. You make something you love that's going to become a monkey on your back and it's going to stifle you. You're going to be chasing it. Make something crap and reject it and find a way forward. That's the way to do it. <laughs> You're a good motivational speaker, aren't you? <laughs> in, a, in a kind of weird, desolate way. <laughs> i got to get my TED talk out of this. <laughs> it's there, 100% is there. See, I ruined that succinct answer there. There you go. <laughs> what do you find most frustrating about your practice? For me, it's finding the next challenge. And I don't mean that in an egotistical way. That sounds egotistical when I say it like that. I don't mean it that way. What I mean is that like, I like to push to work. And I kind of don't like repetition 
Um, so for me, the sad thing is that you're always reliant on the next opportunity coming up. I'm not an artist who can just go into the studio and make it forever. I need an endpoint and I need that finish line to push me beyond the comfort zone because I can make works and then I'll get to a certain point where I'm like, okay, there's a bones of a show here, but I need that finish line to really get the adrenaline pumping and kind of go, okay, where can we push this? How, how, how can we push it that it almost breaks? You need the end point for that. So that, that I do find frustrating because I've never gotten into position in my career where, you know, I talk to some artists and they're like, oh yeah, I've got a show coming up in 2024 and one in 2025. And like mine's generally like, I might know if I have a show in a year. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, that's it. Like, and I've always found it very frustrating. I'd love, because I'm a planner by, by nature. I plan everything like total. I plan my meals. I'm having total neurotic lunacy. Like, but um, so I love to plan. That's the one thing. If, if I had that in my life, I'd just be like, oh, relaxed. If I knew, mm. you know, if I, if I had a plan for the next five years, oh my God, I'd just kind of be jazzing everywhere. But it's fucking amazing. It'd be like so good. But that's my biggest frustration is I never knowing kind of when the next show is. And, you know, that kind of can put you on nerves because as slow as the art world is, suddenly you can move fast where people suddenly go, oh, can you do a show eight months from now? And you're like, well, not a new one. <laughs> I can't, not anymore. I used to be able to, not anymore. Now I'm like, no, you know, to make a brand new show, um, depending on how big it is, I need time. You know, small shows, no, but like if it's a big show, it takes time. The work is slow. Well, that's all my questions. So Damien Flood, thank you very much for joining <laughs> very me welcome. today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been very enjoyable. Try a Little Tenderness is a fifth show in Liminal Gallery's new home at 34 Fort Hill in Margate. The exhibition continues until the 26th of February and we're open Thursdays 11 till 4pm, Saturdays 11 till 3pm and outside of these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website, liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to Liminal Gallery podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn. And I hope you'll join me for my next episode featuring Ingrid Bertham Moyne, who is also part of our group exhibition entitled Try a Little Tenderness, which opens on the 4th of February. All are welcome to join us to celebrate the opening. Bye for now. That was really interesting. It was really nice learning so much more about your practice. I feel like mm. I've done a lot of reading and nosing around on your mm. Instagram and on your website. And I learned so much more. I thought that I was kind of pretty knowledgeable. And we didn't even get into my weird um, researches that I used to do. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. What kind of weird stuff did you do? I used to read books and listen to like a soundtrack while reading them. And so when I go into the studio, I put on the music and I start summoning up the images and emotions from the books. Or when I went to Dubai to do a research trip, I soundtracked the whole thing. 
So I'd walk around with certain music that I'd never listened to before and start ingraining the place with that music. So when I went back into the studio, I could start putting on the music and pulling back the experience. So, or I in- interviewed like about 50 or 60 people in Dunleary, a town next to, next over from me to try and get inspiration for a show. But that was horrible. That was, that was very tough. But <laughs> a lot of odd things I love that I love that you were doing that it's so interesting we should have this part because you're still recording I'm still recording you should leave a gap for about like two minutes and then just have this slowly come <laughs> up and that would make me so happy because that's like you know albums in the 90s that used to have the secret track <laughs> mic drop <laughs> you're rewarded for your slow listening <laughs> for your commitment <laughs> And that ties in with everything we've been talking it about. It ties in perfectly. It's like the chef's kiss. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>